Thank you, Pastor Brenda, and good morning, church. It's great to be with you all today. Welcome to Community Church, whether in person or online. We continue in the relationship series. Now, we're going to just jump right in. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about a conflict that Erica and I had about her kind of flexitarian diet. Um, Last week, Kim referenced it as the missing fish. (laughs) If you haven't heard the build-up to this, let me just quickly recap. So I plan the menu in the home from Monday to Wednesday, and I am definitely more of the meat eater than Erica, and we had some disagreement about not enough plant-based items. So I was working really hard to get enough of those items for us, and so it was Wednesday night, and I had fish for Erica, and I come home, and I pull out the fish, and I ask her, where's the fish? And she says, I ate it for lunch. Now, several ways I could have responded to that, but I basically said, why did you do that? And she said, I didn't know I had to ask permission to eat what was in the fridge. I said, well, that's why you're not going to have fish for dinner tonight. (laughs) So I, I blamed her, right? I blamed her before she could blame me. And I wanted you to have the chance to hear Erica's perspective on this. And to get at what was kind of coming below the surface. Those that don't know, this is my wife, Erica. She's a doctor of psychology, does private practice here. So if you're new, if you're online, you don't know her, that's the brief enter. So what was going on internally there? Yeah, I'm so glad I get to tell my story. I put on lipstick for the first time in like six months, I think. So (laughs) (laughs) the cosmetics companies are not making money off of us this year. But um, yeah, so... What what Wade and I realized, it really took us a while to kind of work out this conflict because, um, you know, at first it just seems like it's about fish and tofu and, and who did what and who didn't do what and who accused who and this kind of thing. And, and, and so we didn't really handle it all that well and it took us a while before we could come back together when we were kind of emotionally regulated again to really think like what happened here and... I think what I was able to say to Wade at some point was, I feel you resent my diet. I feel you resent the needs that I have about about what I have to do with my diet at this point to be healthy. And, um, and, And that, let me tell you, friends, is not really about Wade. That's, um, I mean, yeah, he likes to eat meat, and he would prefer (laughs) that I join in that with him. But but Wade's a nine on the Enneagram. He's actually quite um, accommodating and and doesn't have a problem, really, with meeting other people's needs. But this comes from my own history. It comes from growing up in a family where I had a parent with mental illness, and my own needs were not really high on the priority list. And so I have grown up to really sometimes doubt that those things are important to other people. So that was my part of it. And Wade felt that um, I was implying that he had really not done enough and that he should fix it now, uh, which was really not my intention. I actually, it wasn't it was, it was a big deal to me that we solved this issue, but I didn't need him to solve it right then. But that comes from Wade's background and being a middle child in a family with a high level of conflict and feeling that he needed to fix things a lot of times. So both of us were bringing our history into the situation, and really it was, it was about a lot more than missing fish. Um, So what I want to show you now is a video that's called the Still Face Experiment. Some of you maybe have seen it before. It comes out of the research of Dr. Ed Tronick, who is at Harvard. And and this is 
um, you'll see a part that has to do with moms, and then you'll see a part that has to do with dads. And what they did was they brought parents and children into the labs and watched them in, in how they interacted with each other and how that impacted basically their relationship template. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. Babies this young are extremely responsive to the emotions and the reactivity and the social interaction that they get from the world around them. This is something that we started studying oh, 30, 40 years ago when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. In this still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. Oh, and yeah. she gives a greeting to the baby, the baby gives a greeting back to her. Yeah. Yeah. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this, and then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. The baby looks to the dad and tries to get the dad to get back into those games. Hey, we were just playing just a minute ago, weren't we? We were having fun. What's going on? And then the baby starts to get frustrated when that doesn't work. So she'll have to look away and look around the room and find something else and then look back and say, now can we play? And within three minutes, the baby has really dissolved. She is trying to get out of the chair. She's uncomfortable. She's reaching out to dad. She's crying. And then we ask the dad to turn away again. And when he turns back, to go back to being regular dad. And it's a joyous reunion. They get back into their routines, the things that they do together, the things that they were just doing three minutes before. And the baby settles down and gets back to the comfort zone that she's developed with the dad. What we see in the still face experiment is how able the child is
to initiate and be part of the relationship between the father and the child, but also how much she depends on that relationship in order to keep an even keel. And when she's grounded and comfortable, she can explore the world, she can meet new people, Hola. she can try new things, and she's got that safe base that she can always rely on. And there's a trust level there. We can only begin to imagine what it's like for babies whose life is like that three minutes all of the time. And they don't get that responsiveness and they don't get any help getting back to an even keel. And the results can be very tragic. They can have trouble trusting people. They can have trouble relating to people. And they can have trouble being calm enough so that they can explore the world and take part in the world. So we know that those initial relationships, that initial responsiveness and interaction between the father and the baby are keys to the baby's success as a child and as an adult. quite a powerful video, I think. Um, it, it's quite moving when you see it. And uh, I, show that, I show that clip in all the psychology classes I teach because it's really at the heart of things from the very beginning of what we do in this world and what we experience. Mm. So in scripture, we see lots of ways that God relates to us as parent, as father, as mother. And there's lots of Text that we could go to, like the prodigal son or Psalm 23, but I wanted to, to look in Exodus. So the people of God had been enslaved by Egypt, right? And what does God hear the people do? What does he hear from them? He hears their cries, right? Their cries. And I love that scripture uses that word because it, it's this, you know, infant and parent type of dynamic. And so God hears those cries and he sets about his his freeing of them, his redemption of them. And the context right before we get to these verses here is there's a short way to the promised land and there's a long way. And God says, you know what? If I take the short way, they're going to go into battle against the Philistines. I can't go the short way. The people aren't ready for it, right? Our, my children aren't ready for it. So we're going to go the long way. And not only that, God wants to be present for them. So saw Exodus here, the two verses starting with 21. By the day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God later says that the cloud or the fire, he put them in between God's people and the armies so of Egypt. So there was a protective element that God was providing. His cloud was not just a manifestation or a symbol of his presence. It was Yahweh being present for the people day and night. And God was also patient. He didn't have to go the fast way because the children of God weren't ready for the fast way. They weren't ready for battle. So he's patient. He's going to go the long way because that's what's best for his people. So I love that in this text, maybe you've never thought about the pillar of cloud or fire in this way, but God is meeting the people where they're at. He's present with them. He's protecting them and he's patient with them as a good parent is. 
So this is um, one of my favorite artists, um, Mary Cassatt. And uh, this is a painting she did in 1905. And I snapped this photo, I think, at the, um, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC. It's called Mother and Child. And take a look at what's going on in this painting, because there's actually quite a bit going on. So and the mother's got the child on her lap, and she's holding up this mirror. And what is she doing? What is she helping the child to be able to do? To see herself. That's right. To see herself. And what an important thing this is. And this isn't just mother and child. You could, you know, you could have another painting that says father and child or, or brother and sister or um, grandma and, and child. Um, we just watched Minari last night. It's like a beautiful example of a grandma coming alongside a kiddo and, um, and, and helping them to see themselves and both see each other in, in, through that, that love relationship that forms between them. And so, um, but this is an important thing that we do with our relationships is to help people see each other. So we're going to dig into some, a little bit of theory here that's really important for a moment. So I hope you can stay with me. Um, for this kind of little meaty section we're going to do. And for those of you who are the academics in the room, this comes from um, the work of Hazan, Shaver, and Fraley uh, and their research on adult attachment. So we're going to look at this grid here. And this is a grid of four different attachment styles. These are relationship styles that we learn in childhood and that we bring into our adulthood. So let's start over here with the, the dark blue side, which is secure. Okay, and people who have a secure attachment style can recognize their own needs and the needs of others. They can regulate their emotions and accept comfort. They can take other people's boundaries and accept them, but they can also have boundaries themselves, and they can give and take. Um, and these are people who generally grew up in a household where where their caregivers were responsive to them and showed them that it was okay for them to be part of the group, but also okay for them to be individuals. So um, it, it's easy for them to get close with people, but they're also comfortable with giving other people space because in general, what they feel is I'm okay and you're okay. Um, this is the best platform for kind of adult relationships and we would all love to be there, but the reality is that we don't all come in with that that style. So if you look over here on the preoccupied anxious up on the upper left, um, these folks are high anxiety folks. They anticipate rejection and abandonment. They fear being alone and they can be clingy or overly dependent. Uh, and they tend to react with freeze or fawning. So we've talked about before the fight flight response. So either fi fighting or flighting, leaving um, in situations Freezing is that sort of like, I'm frozen, I'm stuck, I'm checked out, I'm getting brain fog, I'm stuck in my body, but I can't move. And fawning is a slightly more sophisticated um, response in which we, we try to please other people in order to be secure and to get our needs met. And, um, and fawning is really quite dangerous because it gets reinforced in the world. If you are the kid who is a pleaser... You know, parents like that, and, um, and, and adults like that, teachers like that. And then you grow up in the world, and then your bosses like it when you're a pleaser. And so you get a lot of reinforcement, but 
the problem is that if you're doing that really to gain security, you're not ever going to find it that way. And this style is often linked to caregivers who were caring but inconsistently available. So maybe if you had a parent who had an addiction, and when they were sober, they were really lovely people. But when they were not sober, they weren't so great to be around, or they were just absent. Or maybe you had a good parent, but then that parent died, or there was a divorce, or you had some kind of separation. So there's an inconsistency. Or I've had folks whose parents worked so much um, that they that they just never saw them. So even though they were lovely parents, they just didn't see them enough to have that consistent link. So and and those people generally feel like nobody ever gets as close to me as I want, and sometimes I seem to scare people away. So down in this other category over here, dismissive avoidant, um, down on the, the right, uh, these folks avoid intimacy. They tend to be really independent. They prefer not to depend on others and are distrustful. Uh, they don't express emotions very easily and are distant or shut down. Uh, and they tend to flee or to freeze in situations. And these are often linked to caregivers who are absent or neglectful. Because the reality is that if you can't count on the adults around you to be there for you, who do you count on? Yourself. That's right. So, um, and these folks are uncomfortable in general getting close. They feel like a little bit smothered in relationships and feel like other people want them to be more intimate than they're willing to be. And then the fourth category over here is uh, fearful avoidant or disorganized. These terms sometimes have different interchangeable names. But these folks generally don't view themselves positively or view other people positively. And so they have a high level of anxiety, but also a high level of avoidance. And so you get this push-pull dynamic. They can be vacillating and volatile. They want to be loved, but they're worried they will get hurt if they get close. And they don't really think they can be loved. And so they suppress or deny their feelings, but they maybe can explode later. Um, and this is often linked to chaotic childhood environments, really unpredictable childhood environments, um, or where there's abuse or witnessing of domestic violence in the home. So all of us have a style. And, um, and, and you know, some of you are in that secure category that I said is sort of the best platform that sets us up for success. But... Many of you will not be. I'll talk in a, in a little bit about the statistics around this. But here's the good news is actually there's something called earned secure attachment. So in earned secure attachment, you don't start off with secure. You actually start off with one of these other categories, but you're able to move into secure. Not because you're amazing, even though we all are, but because you end up, you choose enough safe relationships where the right things can happen or you get involved in a community where your needs get met and you're around safe, loving people or you have teachers, significant adults who help you move along. You choose the right partner and, and you move along and you earn your secure attachment. And I've sat with a lot of you and heard your stories over dinner and coffee and I know that some of you are those people. You are earning your way to secure attachment. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? that we can move in that way. Um, and so this is not hopeless. This is not um, something where we're trapped in what we came with. Wade and I, neither of us, I think, would say we had a secure platform. 
Um, because of my history, I would say that I kind of had aspects of dismissive and um, aspects of preoccupied. Sometimes I'm quite um, worried about pleasing other people. And sometimes I'm just sort of like, I, I don't, I can't trust you. I can't trust you for fish. I can't trust you for <laughs> whatever. And so, you know, I, I will, that's fine. Don't make me fish. It's okay. I don't need you. So um, we, we can regress back into these patterns. And, um, and, but the good news is that when we realize it, we can find our way back to secure if, we're, if we've been earning that. Do you want to say anything about where you've been? Yeah, I mean, similar. I probably started more with the anxious attachment. And, you know, we started our relationship very young and we both brought that reality to our relationship. So there was a real clinginess that we had with each other because um, we were meeting each other's needs, but in a kind of a dysfunctional way. If you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, it's Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, I think. And one of them says to the other about their relationship, you complete me, right? And that's sort of how we viewed each other. We filled this huge gap that was kind of a you know, never-ending well of need. And so in our relationship, we had to get healthier individually, but also healthier in our way of relating as a couple. Um, so we have made this journey oftentimes to secure, but as you can tell, in those moments of conflict, sometimes we revert back into those unhealthy ways. So... This, I think, is an interesting thing as I've been digging into this topic this week. Um, attachment styles can explain the disconnect between our head and our heart. So attachment styles can explain the difference between what we believe theologically about God and then our experiential belief about God when there's a disconnect. So if you believe God is love, and hopefully you do, but do you struggle to believe God loves you? Or do you think God only loves me when I'm performing perfectly? And you say, God loves me in the midst of sin. And when you have this disconnect, probably attachment styles are at play. There's something going on under the surface that's creating this disconnect. I know God has forgiven me, but do I really believe he's forgiven me again and and again? So when you find this, pay attention to the disconnect. So looking at these four boxes and how this kind of relates. So what if God has not answered your prayer? If you're in a secure place, you might think, well, perhaps my heart is not aligned yet with God's, or maybe I'm waiting and I don't know what the outcome will be. But if you're in one of these other boxes, you might ascribe negativity to God or to yourself. If you're in this preoccupied or anxious place, you might think the first thing is, I must have done something wrong. I have unconfessed sin. That's why God isn't responding. I'm nervous about that attachment. If you're dismissive or avoidant, maybe you haven't brought your big prayer request to God in the first place. I'm not going to ask God to heal this because I don't think I can depend on him anyway. Or maybe in the fearful um, category there, I, I really want God to care, but, but maybe he doesn't. I'm unsure I have this need, I'm in and I'm out, and there's this unpredictableness to our relationship. So it's important to know, not just in our head, but in our heart, that God does in fact love us. And sometimes we need to remember the words that Jesus brings to us and the words he wants to speak to us. So we have these, some of these wonderful verses here um, that Jesus speaks. He says, I do not say that I should pray to the Father for you, because the Father himself loves you. 
Jesus says, my little children, I will not leave you orphans. Says anybody who loves me will be loved by my father and I shall love him and how myself to him. And then in Psalms, we see this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. This, this image of a parent feeding a child. So we know that God wants this secure attachment for us. It's how he wants to relate to us and us to him. So how do we get better? How do we be better in this? And how do we grow in connecting these things in our heart and our head? Well, one thing that won't help us is if we get super neurotic about doing this perfectly. Okay, so um, take a look at this cartoon here. This guy says, will you validate my parking? And she says, you did a great job, evenly spaced at nearly a perfect right angle. (laughs) So we're not talking about needing to get this right all the time. In fact, parents, um, because parents can get really nervous about this kind of stuff. And, um, and parents who are anxious really want to do well. It is a big job to raise a child. It is a big job to enter into an intimate relationship, and we want to do it well. So parents who promote secure attachment are actually only attuned to their children about 30% of the time, okay? So what we saw there in that video, that really lovely dance, um, the positive dance that went on between uh, the parents and the baby, in actuality, when the researchers look at it, That's only going on about 30% of the time when kids are secure. So that's good news. Um, We don't have to be perfect. But the thing is that that's really God's grace that 30% is enough. So it is not a goal, okay? If if we aim for 30%, you're going to get 5%, okay? So this is really important. And and the statistics in the U.S. show that about 50 to 65% of adults have a secure attachment style. Um, I looked for data on this in, um, in Hong Kong or in China in the region, and I couldn't find really good numbers on this. But what I did find is data that shows that, um, that parents and children in Chinese culture have, are more likely to have anxious or um, the preoccupied or the dismissive styles. So, um, so you see less security, essentially. I can't give you numbers on that. But... But that means that this really is quite important for all of us. So let's talk about what will not help also besides getting super neurotic is um, hovering, you know, helicoptering over somebody and um, out of our own anxiety. That will not, that is not what we call attunement and connection, okay? Um, Nagging or constant correcting. That is not, um, though you might mean well because you think that you have the information to help somebody do better is not what we would call attunement in relationship. Giving unsolicited advice, telling other people how they can do better is also not attunement. And hijacking the conversation by talking about your problems is definitely not attunement, okay? So when other people come to you and then you're like, oh, I know what you mean and because this is happening to me and let me tell you about how awful it is for me and now we've hijacked the conversation and derailed it to be about us. Um, Also, overprotecting due to your own fear, okay? So when I moved to Hong Kong, I was shocked at how many parents would admit to me that they do their children's homework, (laughs) okay? 
Now, I know there's some of you in here who are doing it, you know, so no judgment from me on this, okay? Because I get that we're anxious and we don't want our kids to fail. We don't want them to be shamed by teachers, but that is overprotecting due to our own fear, okay? And that is not attunement. And neither is giving or paying for the best opportunities, okay? Um, Didn't I pay for the best of education for you? Did I not drive you to all your ballet lessons? Did I not pay for your football? So this is not attunement, okay? What, What is attunement is that connection that you saw in that video. It's the putting down our phones. It's being together and really listening, And this is something that we can all learn how to do. We may not have received it, but we can learn how to do it and we can do it. So if you find yourself now in this category of one of those insecure attachment styles, so basically everything that is not secure is called insecure. If you are in one of those insecure attachment styles, One of the things I'd really encourage you to do is to write a letter that you don't intend to send to um, whomever hurt you, okay? It's really important that you not send this letter, okay? (laughs) Because (laughs) these are not our refined thoughts on things, okay? This is like spill your heart out. And David did it, and we call it the Psalms, okay? So it's godly. We actually can do this. But, you know... Don't send it, okay? Take that. If you feel like it's time and you're ready to have an actual conflict resolution discussion with somebody about the things that you've written, then go and talk to a therapist or go and talk to a pastor. Sit with somebody and really discern whether what you want to say is going to get you what you want and is really the right thing. So, um, but I'd really encourage you to just, this is not going to fix everything, but this is just a start to kind of address the needs and, and, and the things that you didn't get and for you to acknowledge it because when we can feel it, we can heal it actually with God's help. And when we can put it in our words, we can, if we name it, we can tame it. So these are important kind of principles. And, and some of you are going to say, well, I'm not somebody who was hurt. I am fine. I grew up in a good family and this doesn't really apply to me. And Dr. Erica, by the way, why are you always talking about this heavy stuff? So um, let me say that um, remember those statistics that I gave you from the U.S. and then and, and what we know about Chinese culture, what the data is telling us, that means that this affects 50% or more of the people around us, okay? So there is no one in this room or in our circumstances whom this is not relevant for, okay? Because if you take four people, you're talking about two to three people around you who have this issue going on or who are working through this in some way, if not you. And so that means that if you are doing your CEO global, your prison ministry, if you're working with your university students, if you're talking to your domestic helper, your colleagues and your employees, this is what's going on around them, okay? And this is what they're carrying, um, years ago, I had the opportunity to go on um, an orphanage uh, ministry trip with the church, and, um, and I was asked to go and talk about trauma, and I was asked to talk about attachment, early attachment, and what happens when kids in um, 
an orphanage are carrying this kind of stuff. And so I got all my PowerPoints together and I put all my data together to get ready to do this presentation. We all gathered in a room with the staff at the orphanage and some of the, the workers and some students, um, student leaders that they had brought in uh, to help during this trip. And I'm talking about this stuff and I'm watching people's faces and I'm realizing that this is connecting with them on a whole different level that isn't just about the kids at the orphanage. And then I realized it occurred to me, who are the people working in this orphanage? Well, a number of them were kids who had grown up in the orphanage and came back to work there. And a number of them came because they had grown up in adversity. And I realized, oh my gosh, I prepared this discussion. I prepared this presentation to talk about the kids. I was not prepared to deal with the staff. Okay, but that's why this is so relevant. And this is why we all need to kind of know and we all need to kind of take this information in and let God work through it. Yeah, so you might have been on the receiving end of that injury or you might be the one who has done the injury. And there is still time to change course. We can make decisions today that change that course. So one, own up to where you're at and the lack of presence. Own up to your attachment style. Let that bring in a new window into your heart on how you want to relate to other people. Now, we're going to talk a little bit next week about walking through conflict, so we won't spend too much time here. What else can you do? One, get help. Read a book on attachment. Um, we've got, I think, one workbook left at the table on our how we love, and that's for sale there. Um, there's also great TED Talks on this. Um, talk to a pastor who understands attachment and won't just tell you to try harder, right? The same, be prayed for with somebody who isn't going to just give you advice, but to be with you in that moment. And we'll have a time for prayer after the service that we welcome you to. Um, as people of faith, and maybe you're on the other side of faith, we're glad you're here and ask questions. But one of the realities that we can remind ourselves of is God's love for us. From Deuteronomy, we see this, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Now, the writers of scripture didn't know what attachment style was, right? But if you go back into scripture with that with that reality, with that theory in your mind, you can see so many times God is looking to connect with us as the good parent. These scriptures we'll put up on our social media. Um, there's great scriptures here to remind ourselves of who God is and how he relates to us. We also have a list of resources there. Again, you could snap a photo or um, check out uh, the YouTube feed on this. That will be there. Um, some great books there. We've got one workbook left. Um, at the table. If you are wondering, I wonder what my attachment style is. Sometimes we can self-identify just looking at those boxes. But if you want to take a questionnaire, you can scan that um, QR code there and it'll take you to a, a simple survey where you can unpack this. I want each of you to know that God perfectly loves you and you are perfectly loved. God loves you as a great father. He loves you as a great mother. He sent his son to show us what that love looks like. He sent his spirit to be his presence with us that we don't have to walk through these things alone. We're loved in a unique, holistic, and comprehensive way from God and that God, in fact, can bring healing to us in this area. 
you know, the reality is, is, is we're broken by relationships, but actually we can be healed by relationships too. We can be redeemed in relationships both with God and with one another. And as a community, we can encourage one another. We can journey alongside one another. As we take journeys to more security, we don't have to do it alone. Let's pray, church. God, I thank you that you are in fact present here, that that your spirit is at hand, God, that you want to lead us, you want to, to flow into us, God, you want to redeem us. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you are a good father who is present for us, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.